The Future of Cities is presented by Katera. This episode is brought to you by Twilio, a leading cloud communications platform. The mission was on location at Twilio's customer and developer conference, Signal. We heard amazing keynotes, including talks from the co-creators of Westworld, the rock band OK Go, and skateboarding legend Tony Hawk. If you weren't able to make it to Signal, we got you covered. You can watch these keynotes and more by visiting the link in the show notes. To learn more about Twilio and how they are changing communications, go to twilio.com. Welcome to the Mission Daily. This week, we are previewing our new podcast, The Future of Cities. In season one of The Future of Cities, we dive deep on subjects affecting how our cities are growing and changing. Each episode includes commentary from industry-leading experts, including city planners, technology innovators, government officials, architects, builders, and more. This week on The Mission Daily, we are running the interviews we did for The Future of Cities in their entirety. Today, we share our interview with Jody Kelman. Jody is a director for the self-driving platform at Lyft. She talked to us about the future of self-driving cars and how it could save 40,000 lives per year. She also told us how Lyft is partnering with cities to push forward change and alleviate traffic. If you like what you are hearing, please subscribe to The Future of Cities on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Could you share your full name and title for the audience? Hey guys, I am Jody Kelman. I am a product lead on our open platform for self-driving here at Lyft. So what we really work on is plugging the best self-driving technology into the Lyft network and enabling you as a passenger to get your first self-driving ride. Cool. And what is the scope of like the self-driving kind of platform for Lyft and just self-driving cars in general? I mean, this is something we've been talking about for literally a hundred years, you know, that the cars would drive themselves uh, or fly themselves. What's kind of like the, the past present, you know, scenario of, of self-driving cars? Yeah. So one of the things we are really good at at Lyft is figuring out how to take a technology that seems frankly, super futuristic and turning it into something that is incredibly familiar and comfortable for passengers. So when was the first time you took a Lyft? I think it was in 2013. We were talking about this off air about how I, I mean, I don't know if I was like an early, like one of the very first early adopters, but I was definitely an early power user for <laughs> sure. Awesome. So, I mean, if you had asked one of your friends in 2013, whether they would get into a car with a stranger, for most of them, that probably felt completely insane. And here we are, you know, less than five years later and we're in a place where it's the most normal thing in the world to get out your phone and request a ride from someone you don't know. And so we think about self-driving and the transition to self-driving really in very much the same way. So we anticipate that almost all people are going to get their first self-driving ride through something like the Lyft network. And we think that this is going to roll out along limited routes that really ride sharing enables. So think about it this way. A self-driving car can really only handle a limited set of routes. It's a set of routes that it's pre-mapped. We need to make sure in this transitional period that those are routes that don't involve things like heavy construction, or maybe even we've looked at routes that don't have a roundabout on them or a difficult unprotected left turn. 
With something like the Lyft Network, what we can do on the back end is make a really smart decision about when to send you a self-driving ride versus a regular Lyft. So when you request a ride, let's say you're going from the Lyft offices here in San Francisco over to the mission offices, if we have a self-driving car that can take you along that route, that's what we'll send to you. But if that route isn't opened up to self-driving yet, we'll be able to send you a regular Lyft. So the idea basically that I would call Lyft, I don't know what's going to show up. It could be a dry, it could just be a, a driver. It could be self-driving. Is there like possibility that there's like a golden retriever sitting in the passenger seat? I mean, like how far into the future is that? So, so first off, we always, at the risk of making a bad pun, we always want to put the passenger in the driver's seat. They should always be deciding whether they want to get into a self-driving car. And so actually, if you were to go to Las Vegas today and open up your Lyft app, you could try out our first ongoing self-driving program with our partner Aptiv. And the way it would work is you would open up your Lyft app and we would show you a little request screen that asks whether you want to participate in the self-driving pilot. And then if we have a self-driving car that's going to be close to you, we'll just send you that car instead of a regular Lyft. And so for a passenger, it feels really seamless. It's easy, but you also always have the opportunity to reject it. We give everyone, there's an opt-in when you sort of join the program, and then there's another opt-in when you actually get sent your self-driving Lyft. And so we're always making sure you have the chance to decide whether this is something you wanna do. Who owns the cars? Right now, our partners own the cars. So we're partnered with six of the best self-driving technology companies in the market. So you would have seen us, I don't know if, how much you're, you sort of geek out on self-driving news, uh, but in December, we launched our first self-driving pilot with our partner Newtonomy in Boston. Those were Newtonomy's cars. Now we are on the road with Aptiv in Vegas, and those are Aptiv's cars. Oh, that's very cool. So it's so it's potentially the the ability to partner with cities all over the world where those self-driving platforms are like in those kind of nodes, for lack of a better term. Exactly. So building this open platform for self-driving allows anyone who is building best-in-class self-driving technology to plug into Lyft. And so they get access to our passenger base and the fact that we're really good at creating sort of trusted, warm, hospitality-driven user experiences. And for us, what we get to do is see self-driving technology come to market much sooner than it might be able to for an individual buyer of a self-driving car. Because they can just plug into the network. They don't need to build the network effects of having all of those different things. Exactly. Is that fostering like a ton of innovation between those self-driving technologies? Yeah. What's really cool is that we can get real-time feedback on how passengers are reacting to this technology. So One of the funniest sort of insights for us is that so far the biggest consumer reaction to self-driving cars that we're getting is the technology is boring. It is the only time as a product manager that you want to roll out a new product and, and have passengers respond and say, oh my God, this was the most boring thing I've ever done. But sitting in these cars, so we did a a cool pilot at the Consumer Electronics Show in, in January in Las Vegas. And we saw over 400 folks get into cars 
that week. And I was sitting in a lot of these cars with them. So I got to watch their reactions. And what you see across the board is that for the first 30 seconds, they are super into the technology. They're watching the fact that the safety driver doesn't have his or her hands on the wheel and they are just loving it. And then 30 seconds in, they realize it's just a car ride. And so they tune out, they start talking about their date with their best friend who's sitting in the seat beside them. And so it just becomes a really normal ride. You know, it kind of reminds me of, you know, when you go to Disneyland for the first time and you get on any roller coaster or anything like that, you get in and you're like strapped in and you're kind of like looking, you're like, wait, this is, I don't know, I'm not in control anymore. This is kind of weird. And as soon as you go into that first drop, you're like, okay, I'm in the ride. Yeah. And that's, you know, but in this case, we have a opportunity for that ride to save 40,000 lives a year. And so part of the important role we think we're playing is really in speeding this sort of consumer trust of a new technology that maybe feels unfamiliar to people, but that once they engage with it, they're really bought in and they become supporters. Let's talk a little bit about safety, because I think that this is something that is the biggest, pardon the pun here, driver of... Uh, you and I are just going to make a series of, <laughs> of bad puns throughout this conversation. It's, it's, uh, it's par for the course here at the mission. But it really drives the dialogue around this idea of safety. And obviously you had, or we had like the first casualty and all of that, that happened. I think that, you know, not to get, you know, utilitarian, but it's like, I think that there is a barrier for people to realize that in one hand, there's a possibility that things do go wrong with this technology as with any technology. But the other side of that is that we can prevent 40,000 lives. I guess, what are you seeing from the distracted driving from, you know, people have headphones in now, they have more technology in their car than ever before, they have more mobile devices than ever before. I mean, is are we living in a, or is society growing with the fact that it is more unsafe to drive your car yourself or to be around other drivers and we should just kind of like let go of the notion that it's going to be safer anytime soon, that people are just going to wake up one day and just not answer their text messages? I think... One of the most critical statistics that gets overlooked in a lot of the conversations on self-driving technology is the fact that 94% of automobile deaths in the United States every year are preventable deaths. So those are coming from the distracted driving that you're talking about. They're coming from the intoxicated driving. And so when we look at self-driving tech, we certainly, at, at Lyft, we are fundamentally a safety first company. And so safety is always top of mind in anything we are doing and in any rollout we are doing. But when we're looking at the opportunity here, you know, we know a self-driving car is able to do really basic things better than a human being can. We know, you know, as a human, I'm looking straight ahead of me on a highway. A self-driving car has a 360 degree field of view. As a human, I can see about 250 feet in front of me when I'm looking down the road at night. A self-driving car's radar can see about four times that distance. And I don't react that quickly as a human. It takes me about 1.6 seconds to react to something that I might see in front of me. And a machine can do that in about a third of the time. So we both see these amazing step changes in what cars are able 
to perceive and how they're able to respond to, to what they're seeing. But we also see this massive shift in really getting a machine that doesn't do all these things that we as humans do do. You said that Lyft is a safety first company. I, I know one company that's not a safety first company, and that's the individual human being. When at the end of Friday night, you've had a long day and you have a newborn and you haven't slept and you need to drive home in an hour and a half of traffic, like that person is not safety first. And whether or not they feel like they are or not, they're not. They should not. And like we have free will to choose these things, which is which is great, but you also have the free will to choose to get in a car that is run by a machine that can get you there, you know, uh, that you're exponentially safer. When I think about why I come to work every day and work as hard as I do, the timeline that I have in my mind is that my mom is currently 66. And I figure at 86, I'm going to have to take away her keys. So I want a decade of buffer where I've got a self-driving car that can allow her to maintain the freedom that she has today, but also make sure that she is safe when she's getting out on the road. You know, when I was a kid, I actually got into an accident with my grandfather's best friend who fell asleep at the wheel. And that is the thing that I keep in mind every time I come into work because we have the opportunity to fundamentally make that a thing of the past. Let's switch gears a little bit to the future of cities and how transportation affects cities, how transportation increasingly connects cities. What do you think makes a great city? At Lyft, we don't think this is rocket science. So a great city is fundamentally a happy city. And a happy city is one that is built around the types of human connections you and I are having right now rather than around cars. So in the U.S., we have spent the last century or so reshaping our cities around the automobile. And we believe that there is really a different answer here, that we can build cities that are built around human connection. So you might hop into your lift in the morning with me on your way to work because we're going along the same path. And suddenly, instead of being stuck in this box by ourselves, we are engaging in a human connection en route to where we're going. Or it might be you grabbing a lift bike or a scooter. So we've just announced a partnership with Motivate, the largest bike sharing operator in North America. Suddenly you're going to be able to grab a bike on your way to work and get outside into you know, a green space instead of into an individually owned car. And so we really think that as you move towards these human-scaled cities, you're going to see a shift in our environmental outcomes, our economic outcomes, and our social outcomes. Yeah, I mean, I think for those of us who live, you know, we both live in the Bay Area, but for people who live in big cities all over the world, I think one of the reasons why it was adopted so quickly is that there was people who, you know, the people who always prided themselves on, why well, I don't own a car, right? And now... I think they were probably some of the er biggest early adopters, right? I have never, I haven't had a car for years and now it's way easier for me to get around. Talk to me about the smaller city or the suburb areas that now can be more easily connected with driverless cars. And, and I think that if you could like share the broader vision of when you know, 10 million cars are driverless, when 20 million cars are driverless. Like, what is that point where you can get from 
you know, San Francisco to Napa or Philly to DC or wherever it is, these longer stretches that it's affordable and it's faster. And, you know, you could sit there and you could work the entire time. You could take a nap, you know, like those are the sort of things that I think are so fascinating. It's fun. We did a cool little experiment at the Consumer Electronics Show this year where we hired a sketch artist to come in and worked with our passengers to allow them to reimagine the cabin of the future. So, oh yeah, yeah. we need to. You, you need to send this over afterwards. We'll pu- we'll publish it with the future. I would cities love this to. Episode. It was really cool to see what people came up with. Right. So when you pull the driving or the steering wheel out of a car and you pull the brake pads out, you pull out those two front-facing sets of seats. What can you do with this cabin? Right. Can it become your like ongoing work pod? Can it become? I kept joking with people that you could build like a little Amazon mini store. Someone came up with the idea of doing a soda shop of the future. So this kind of like retro futuristic thing. But people's imaginations are already there. So when I talk to friends about this or when I speak on panels and try and talk about what I think we need to do today to get us to that sort of 10 million car number, what I always encourage people to do is to think about how we should shift our behavior today to support a self-driving future. So what are some of those things that we can be doing? We can be moving away from single occupancy lanes on highways and on city streets into either bus rapid transit lanes or shared rapid transit lanes. So we can discount the price of a ride that takes place in one of these lanes, and we can make people pay for the use of individually owned cars. Frankly, we can drive up the cost of operating a gasoline-powered machine. So at Lyft, you may have heard that we announced in May that we're doing this really cool carbon offset program. So every Lyft ride today is going to be carbon neutral. What that means is that it now costs me more as Lyft to offer you a non-shared ride, a non-electric ride. And what that does is it aligns my incentives as I push forward into this fully electric, shared, autonomous fleet to make sure that I am sort of building my product today focused on shared rides and electric rides. So how do you view sustainability at Lyft and sustainability specifically within you know, driverless cars and kind of connected ride sharing? So the average car sits empty about 94% of the time right now, which is a statistic that always boggles my mind. Uh, Combined with that, the other one that always just blows me away is the idea that we are spending basically an area the size of the state of Connecticut devoting that to parking. So we've got these underutilized assets, which means that we have spaces that are over-dedicated to parking. And with self-driving, we really see an opportunity to shift that. So first, by moving folks into shared autonomous rides. Secondly, by doing some of the things we can do with a self-driving fleet that frankly we can't do with our normal Lyft fleet today. So we can, for instance, with self-driving, know where every car on our platform is going to be. We don't need to worry about whether, you know, someone might be going offline to grab a coffee at Starbucks. We know where every car is and where it's going to be. And therefore, we can really efficiently pre-position that vehicle to where demand is going to be. And what that means is as we drive up both occupancy of the car and we drive up 
the efficiency of how a car is getting to where it's going, we can drive down dead miles. And I think it's so fascinating because, I mean, I've shared many, 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 many lifts, especially in San Francisco. Yeah, I've... Well, you look at when I, I forget it was a while ago where you released where it's like it's like four dollars anywhere in San Francisco or something yeah. like that that you could share. Um, and it might be different now, but the idea is like that's essentially faster and more efficient than the bus. But I think that part of the reason why people are hesitant to share rides in general is because there's a possibility that it takes them way longer. But with driverless, when there are enough cars on the road that traffic starts to decrease then it's not going to be that time intensive to be able to share rides. And it's not going to be that much like the cost benefit for the person who's like, is it worth an extra five minutes for an extra $2 or whatever it is? But I think that those sort of things like won't even be a a decision point 10 years from now. Like people won't even think about it. Well, and self-driving also lets you take ride sharing to the next level. So right now when you share a ride, you're just getting into someone's car. But imagine if you got into a car that had a cool lift screen in the back. So your new lift in-car app. And in that in-car app, we've actually matched you with someone who loves the same, you know, Netflix show that you're addicted to. And so instead of getting into a car with a stranger and not really knowing what you're going to talk about, suddenly we can actually give you guys information, assuming you're cool with that, to help you know who the person is next to you, and maybe even, you know, hang out in your self-driving car on the way from Palo Alto to San Francisco, watching the latest Breaking, well, Breaking Bad no longer has latest episodes, but you can binge watch your Breaking Bad with, you know, the other guy who missed it. I mean, I think it's a really interesting thought experiment because, and I love the idea of like, you know, you get picked up in the ice cream, like 1950s ice cream soda booth or whatever it is. But I think that these things are really important thought experiments to think about, like, what could you be picked up in that would be amazing? And like, this stuff isn't that far away that you could be picked up in something that has, you know, if you're going with your kids, it could, you could be picked up and there could be, you know, books in the car, there could be toys in the car that they'd want to play with. There's like all sorts of different things that I think if you're going to Tahoe and it's going to be a three hour drive and you're like, oh, hey, I wish I had, you know, I spy. And it's like, it's there waiting for you in the car. Like that sort of stuff is no, I mean, the only thing that we're even close to with that is like the cash cab, which is the greatest thing ever. But I think that, I think we're so worried about, I'm going to get in the, get in the car with my headphones on, you know, and listen to whatever, which is fine too. And I'm going to be worried about sitting in traffic for a long time. If that was alleviated, it opens up another world of possibilities. Exactly. And as you're seeing cars do things like connect to each other or to the traffic grid and we'll be able to fundamentally shift how quickly you can get from point A to point B. And on top of that, you can throw in a nap pod. So if if you do happen to get stuck in traffic, you can just, you know, take your cool nap pod I cover out and go hang while you sleep. So, you know, the average American spends over 3,000 hours of their life in traffic. And and I think, I mean, that's definitely, I mean, we need a statistician on that for if you live in LA, the Bay Area, DC, New York, like much higher percentage. Yeah, it turns out if you live in LA, you're basically screwed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I used to live in, in Southern California, so I know. And like, that is crazy. It's... I. I would say, you know, it is one of the things that um, 
you know, it is a silent killer of our lives. It destroyed 3,000 hours. Like that is, I, I'm, you know, that is enough time that we absolutely, this is a huge problem in productivity, in happiness, in all of these things. And if the difference between self-driving cars and not self-driving cars, if like the mental barrier to entry for people to say like, you know, I think I'm okay with this is, hey, you get to spend 1,500 more hours with your children. Exactly. Like people are probably going to say, okay, I think I'd rather spend, you know, an additional 30 minutes with my kids every night rather than worried about, you know, if the robot's going to get me there. Well, it's funny you say the silent killer. One of the numbers that always blows my mind is that loneliness has the same impact on mortality as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And so you quote that 3,000 hour number. The more mind boggling part is that 63% of those trips are done by yourself. And so that's why you see us focusing so much on sharing the ride. So right now, 35% of Lyft passengers are taking shared rides in cities where it's available. We've pledged to make that number 50% by the end of 2020. And that's really where you see us investing a lot of our efforts. So we redesigned our app in June to put more of a privilege on shared rides and connections to transit, because we really believe that the worst possible thing for a human is to spend time in a box by yourself. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's like scientifically proven that exactly. it is that way. So the self-driving division started about a year ago at this point. So what kind of like progress have you made? And then what kind of problems are you running into? So our, our self-driving team at Lyft is comprised of two different components. So we've got both our open platform team for self-driving, which plugs these third-party self-driving vehicles like Waymo vehicles or Aptiv vehicles into the Lyft network. And then we have what we call our level five team for self-driving systems, which is working to build the self-driving system for the car, the self-driving brain. It's funny because when I think back on where we were a year ago, not a single person on the Lyft network had ever taken a self-driving ride. Self-driving was sort of, a, it was a fantasy in our future. And now we have an ongoing program in Las Vegas with our partner Active, where again, you can just open up your Lyft, Lyft app along the strip. And just like you're requesting a normal Lyft ride, you're able to get a self-driving lift. So when I think about how far we've come and sort of the normalization of, of what this effort is, we are at a fundamentally different point than we were at 365 days ago. On the level five side, it has been a really great ride. Uh, we have hired a world-class team over the last year. You've also seen us partner with Magna, who is the largest tier one supplier in North America. And so I think you'll be seeing a lot more coming out of that division. So I want to talk a little bit about the idea of like every car on the road being a self-driverless car, because I think that it's a misconception in society that these like technological, you know, revolutions that we get some things really right and we get some things really wrong, right? You know, when pagers came out, we thought that we'd have pagers for a long time. And then it turns out we didn't have anything close to that. With with self-driving cars, I think that there's this misconception that every car is going to be autonomous someday. And people are like, well, I still want to be able to drive my Mustang or I want to be whatever. Like 
you're still going to be able to do that. You're a human being. You can do these things. But what is the point where there are so many self-driverless cars on the road that it makes life like exponentially better for everyone? First of all, at, at Lyft, frankly, we're a driver-based company today. And drivers are a core part of the Lyft family. So this is something we think a lot about. And what we really believe is that we are at day one in the world of ride sharing and, and the world of self-driving. So 0.5% of vehicle miles traveled in the United States today are on a ride sharing network. That means we have so much left to do across the board. And we believe that drivers are going to be a critical part, not only of, you know, hey, an individual who wants to go out and take their Mustang for a joyride, but a driver on the Lyft network who wants to keep bringing the same type of hospitality-focused service to our business that we do today. So we really anticipate this hybrid network is how self-driving cars are going to be rolled out for the next, you know, five to 10 years. And what we anticipate happening as ride sharing grows is that there's going to be an additional need for drivers on our network. We're actually going to need to grow the number of drivers. But as you start seeing more rides transition into autonomy, we're going to want drivers to take on some of those added service roles like providing rides to the elderly or helping out with medical transportation. So folks who might be able to use a self-driving car but need a little bit of an extra assist. Well, so, okay, you previously worked for the Obama administration. Could you just describe that role a little bit and kind of like how that, and that was, you know, about 10 years ago, right? Uh, amazingly, yes, but don't tell anyone I'm <laughs> But so kind of just talk a little bit about what you were looking at then and how that shapes now, and then kind of like looking out, you know, an additional 10 years from now as some of the challenges that you were seeing then that might have already be, been solved in, in less time and some of the ones that you see that still need to be targeted. So I worked on the Obama transition team in 2008 on what was called the Technology Innovation and Government Reform Team. And our job was really to figure out how to use technology to make government work better. Now what we're doing at Lyft is working to make sure that all of this life-saving technology that we're trying to bring to the market is something that we roll out in partnership with cities and with governments. So when we are running our self-driving pilots, for instance, in Las Vegas, we partner directly with Clark County and the city of Las Vegas to make sure we're doing this the right way. And I think that's one of the things, frankly, that makes me happiest to work at Lyft, that we've always taken this completely collaborative approach to how technology and government should work together. And I think that's really important. And I'd love to for you to dive a little bit more into that of how we partner with cities specifically, because I think part of the issue that I think people across the world always look at is that, well, but my city's different. And that is true. So how do you kind of like look at those type of partnerships? What kind of input are the cities giving to you that you can kind of like structure those in a way that, you know, makes it better for the citizens? I think what we can do is use our ride sharing network today to make sure we are pushing forward the types of collaborative changes we want to see in the self-driving future. And leveraging so, data and like you have so much data about all the different things. Exactly. So yeah. let me give you an example that we did here in San Francisco. So one of the things we saw was that we were 
dropping off and picking up a lot on Valencia Street, which, you know, for those of you guys who don't live in San Francisco is one of the main corridors in the city. It's got very heavy car traffic, heavy bike traffic, heavy pedestrian traffic. And so we partnered with the city of San Francisco to come up with a technology solution where on our back end, we re-diverted pickups to side streets so that we could move cars off of Valencia and into safer pickup and drop-off locations. And with doing that, we've managed to move 20,000 pickups to date onto side streets around Valencia Street. And that means that we're starting to build that muscle of a safe, autonomous pickup and drop-off location that we'll be able to use in partnership with cities in the future. So this is a really critical insight, and I'm glad that you shared that, because for a government to be able to do that research themselves would be so difficult because number one, you have to connect all of the cars in some way. You have to track that. You'd have to figure out how you're going to get that real-time data. And you're essentially providing that for free and saying like, hey, here's all this data of like what we're seeing from X percentage of, of riders. So presumably, it's not just us doing this. People are doing this all the time, whether it's just people with their individual cars or whatever. You're being able to to say, go as a value add to the city and say, hey, we have all this data that shows that there's clusters here, here, and here, and you know, use this as you may, but for us, we're gonna divert it into other places. That's, and we can also do the same thing as we announce, you know, we have 25 transit partnerships that we've announced in the last year. We, are, we just announced that we're redesigning our app to actually integrate it with transit. And so as we start building these more innovative partnerships, we can really leverage what Lyft does well and what cities do well to bring, bring better transportation solutions to passengers. What do you think about the idea of transportation as a service and the fact that people in the future will not need to own a car that they would, I mean, would they be paying a monthly fee? Would they be, you know, how does this, how does this look? Is it all on demand? Is it subscription based? Like, what do you kind of see as, as the utility there? At Lyft, we often say we're in the midst of a third transportation revolution. So away from this idea of individual car ownership into transportation as a service. So right now, you are, if you're like most Americans, spending about $9,000 a year on owning your car, which is more, incidentally, than you are spending on either food or on healthcare. And we think that's crazy. So we want to create a world where the same way you probably got rid of your DVD collection in favor of Netflix, you can get rid of your individually owned car in favor of this subscription service through the Lyft app. So you might buy it as something like an all-you-can-eat package. So if you're a heavy user and you do a lot of weekend road trips, maybe up to Napa Valley, you can buy the Lyft subscription. Uh, or if you're more like an on-demand user, you could use Lyft just like you use ride-sharing today. And so we really see this move away from you having to lug around this asset that costs you 9000 bucks that sits empty 94% of the time, to one where you're just going to be able to open up your app and get a ride anytime you need one. I mean, that sounds absolutely great. As someone who spent half of my weekend at Jiffy Lube trying to get my oil changed on my aging Toyota Yaris, I am so ready for Lyft's subscription service. So this is really interesting because the $9,000 a year 
kind of makes me think about, okay, well, how much should I buy my car for? How much do I pay in gas? How much do I pay in services? The idea that you have the foreboding feeling of like, I just passed a hundred thousand and it's like, what is this? What's the next threshold? When is the next big part that needs to be changed? It's the fear of the unknown, which is, I mean, you kind of have both sides of this where, you know, the fear of the unknown is, well, I don't know if I'm not driving, then there's, you know, there's a robot driving that that's scary. I'd say a bigger fear of the unknown is that if my, you know, whatever engine has a huge problem and it's a catastrophic, you know, failure, what am I going to do? Am I going to buy another car? Do I have the money to buy another car? Like that's a more dangerous scenario for a family that can't, afford to do that than it is to, you know, pay X amount of dollars a month, which coincidentally, you're probably already paying in a, in a, le- in a lease or, a, or for your car to pay it off anyways. And you don't have to, you're not paid interest. Well, last year we saw 250,000 people give up their cars in favor of taking Lyft. So we already see that people want to make this transition and we just want to do what we can to get them there. For kind of like the hist- like the transportation revolution type things, I mean, a lot of cities in the world, like not, especially not in the US where it's not as driver heavy, they use a lot of the public transit and things like that where, you know, it was provided to them. You're still paying into it in some capacity, but whether that's through taxes or otherwise, but this idea of like, I need to own my own thing is really not that old. Like it's not that old of a, of a phenomenon. I guess maybe if you owned your own horse, you know, back, you know, a hundred years, 150 years ago, but ultimately it's like, it's a more new concept than I think we all realize. Yeah. And as humans, what we really want is the service that's being provided. So I am guessing you aren't mourning that stack of CDs in your living room that used to sit there and take up space and you're pretty happy with Spotify. So we wanna see the same thing happen at Lyft where the rite of passage for a 16 year old when they get their driver's license is not to go out and buy their own car, but it's to throw that driver's license away and go get their first Lyft subscription. I mean, it's really fascinating that you could in essence quantify how much it costs people a year to have a car and essentially cut that in half or or less. But I think that the problem for most of us is, and I love my family, but I would say we're not the best with finances. And we definitely don't know how much we're spending each year on, on cars. It's not like we look at the end of the year and do an audit and this is how much I spent on gas. This is how much I spent on whatever. Like people just generally, I mean, some people do that, other people don't, but it is a huge amount of money. It's a huge amount of money and it's also a huge amount of time. So my guess is you're not sitting there quantifying, you know, the $9,000 that adds up, but it probably bugs you when on a weekend that you could be spending with your family, you have to take your car into the shop. And so we think that there is a much better answer where, and we're starting to look at this for the self-driving world, where Lyft is going to have to take care of these self-driving cars from end to end. We're going to have to clean them, maintain them, service them. And we can do the same thing for your car today so that you don't have to be burdened with individual car ownership. And instead, you can just hang out and rent something through the Lyft app. Let's switch gears into the lightning round. Okay, what app are you using on your phone that is the most fun right now other than Lyft? The sad answer I was going to have was Google Calendar, and that just tells me I need to get out more. I think the actual most fun I'm having is with Telegram, which is this like end-to-end encrypted messaging app. And I've got 
a awesome thread set up between my boyfriend and his best friend and me. And now I don't think the NSA can spy on it. Oh, that's great. Favorite time-saving tool? That is definitely Google Calendar and its ability to suggest a meeting time. I have no idea why they don't build it into the web-based app. Totally agree. Is Lyft using like AI or machine I mean, no kidding, obviously, but um, or like chatbots or anything like that to more efficiently like communicate with riders, passengers, all this sort of stuff. Yep. So if you go into your app and let's say you have a problem with one of your rides, we now do a lot of proactive help in resolving things like, hey, you know, did you get charged a fee that you don't think you should have been charged? We can now resolve that much more quickly through chatbots in the app. This is something that I think that people get so frustrated and it's definitely part of our culture that we get so frustrated with these like little mini things that will get sorted out in time. Like it's just, there needs to be enough of a runway between like, like you said, you know, five years ago, no one had, or, you know, six years ago, basically no one had ever taken a Lyft ride. A year ago, no one had ever taken a driverless car or driverless ride. Like we're going to figure these things out. It's okay if you get left or somebody cancels or this, that, or the other, like chill out people. It's, I am trying to introduce my parents to the MVP concept, which for your listeners who don't know what that is, that's a minimum viable product, which is like, how do you get out the bare minimum of what you need to build as quickly as possible? And my parents are not natural MVP builders in life. And so we're working on MVP scheduling in our, our family calendar. What is your favorite team, sports or otherwise? I was a rugby player in college. So in spite of the fact that I don't quite look like I'm built for rugby, uh, rugby is my favorite. I also lived like in Australia all- for three years. So I, I am. Oh, so you're not an All Blacks fan? My, I, I'm not an All Blacks my, fan. My brother-in-law's uh, Kiwi, so. That's, I, I do love the Hakka, but I have to work, root for the Wallabies. Favorite podcast? Well, yours, clearly. Other than the future cities. I have been weirdly obsessed with this Dax Shepard podcast called The Armchair Expert recently, where he interviews people about all matters of sort of how they're thinking through living their life. It's just super honest and really in-depth. I would say on the work front, if I were like giving a recommendation, the A16Z podcast is hands down where I learn the most about what is going on in other parts of tech. Just consistently super interesting. We're just there Friday talking to Sonal. That's, she's, she is amazing. Can you give her like a big fist bump for me? I will 100% do that. Favorite recent book that you've read? Ooh, I just finished this book called Machine Platform Crowd. That's all about- I've heard about that. It is, it's great. It's by these HBS, Harvard Business School professors who are basically talking about the three fundamental shifts we're going to see in technology from basically people's brains to machine learning, from asset ownership to platforms like Lyft, and away from sort of knowledge bases that are built up in companies to crowdsourcing. It's a really fun overview of a lot of the trends that are shaping tech. Favorite show that you're watching? I am weirdly, my actual answer is that somehow I started binging Madam Secretary (laughs) last weekend, and I'm a sucker for any type of show that shows a version of government in which government is good. My fun fact that I always give to people when I start a job is that I was an extra on the West Wing when I was in high school. So I was a big West Wing fan. I'm now a big Madam Secretary fan. 
Last question. Favorite one day getaway in the Bay Area? Oh my gosh. Totally Russian River, Dry Creek Grocery, and then wine tasting at Talty. I love the Russian River, and I'm going to Salt Point this weekend. It's, you want an extra body in the car? <laughs> if you provide the car. If yeah, we... <laughs> well, we'll take a self-driving lift. <laughs> yeah, then we don't need a driver. Thanks so much. That's, uh, that's all we got. I really, really appreciate it. Great to meet you, and thanks for having me on. Thank you to our friends at Katera. The multi-trillion dollar global construction industry is ready for change. Katera's end-to-end team is joining together from different industries to innovate the future of building. Learn how you can join their growing team at katera.com or click the link in our show notes. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.